Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 195, The War Resumes. First, as always, I want to thank our newest patron, and that is Alec. Big thanks to you, Alec. And as always, for everyone else, you can support the show by for as little as a dollar an episode. And even for that amount, you get some cool stuff. In that case, a special History of Bonsko miniseries. But there's lots of other neat stuff, so check out Patreon if you're interested. And with that, let's get into it. Last time, an armistice was finally signed pausing the fighting while peace negotiations began in London. There, Bulgaria's insistence on taking Adrianople, as well as Serbia's that they should be given access to the Adriatic Sea, are both major sticking points. Meanwhile, Greece, having never signed the armistice, continued to fight on the Aegean and a few islands. The great powers, for their part, have agreed that an independent Albania should be established, but are still figuring out what the borders of that Albania should be. Otherwise, the Bulgarian navy had its first proper battle, with one of its torpedoes hitting an Ottoman cruiser, and, to cap it off, Alexander Nevsky Church, the sort of most iconic church of the entire Bulgarian nation, was completed in Sofia. So, now we're starting off in early January of 1913, with negotiations for a final peace based on that initial armistice, ongoing. On January 4th, the great powers came to an agreement that indeed the Ottomans should give up Adrianople and those key Aegean islands near the mouth of the Dardanelles that kind of help control shipping in and out, sending the Ottoman representatives a note informing them that this is what the great powers have decided. Five days later, on the 9th, the Ottomans finally gave in and accepted. So there you go. The Greeks and the Bulgarians got what they wanted. Well, let's say yes and no, because yes, they did, but it lasted mere hours. Now, to explain what happens, I've got to rewind a little bit and remind you of a few events in Ottoman politics. So, you'll recall, back in 1908, the Young Turk Revolution brought the Committee for Union and Progress, aka the CUP, aka the Young Turks, to power. The next set of elections in 1911 actually brought an opposition party to power, but then new elections in 1912 were rigged, more or less, by the CUP to give themselves an overwhelming majority. So you've had this kind of back and forth between the CUP and the party opposing it. Now, this opposition party, along with a group of army officers, managed to get the CUP government elected in 1912 to resign back in July of that year. This triggered new elections, But before they could be held, the Balkan War broke out and they were cancelled until the war was finished. So, during the war, the Ottoman Empire has been run by a kind of non-partisan interim cabinet. Back in October, the Grand Vizier had resigned and been actually replaced by a member of that opposition party. So, again, the Ottomans are technically being run by a non-partisan government, But the reality is that the government is being run by a member of the Freedom and Accord Party, which is the main party I've been talking about that opposes the CUP. So 
Technically, it's a non-party government, but in reality, it's kind of an opposition government. I promise all this is important. I know it's a bit confusing. So, this opposition Grand Vizier wants to not just, you know, win the war, obviously, but wants to find, if he can, a way to destroy the CUP in the process. So, this is the government that just agreed to the peace deal that gives up Adrianople and the Aegean Islands, which we can note is an incredibly unpopular decision for the Ottoman Empire's Turkish population. Now, all the strain of the last few months of war has put a tremendous amount of pressure on the Freedom and Accord Party, giving the CUP an opening to maybe strike back. That strike came in the form of a coup on the 10th of January, again, just hours after the peace deal was signed in London. The coup was led in part by a man named Enver Bey, who will soon become a major political figure in the Ottoman Empire, known later as Enver Pasha, who, well, you might know him as that. So he's a figure to bear in mind. So here's what happened with the coup. Enver Bey and other CUP members arrived at the main buildings of the Ottoman government and started giving speeches about how the government was about to give away Adrianople, leading an angry crowd to gradually gather and get bigger. Now, this crowd eventually entered government buildings, ultimately finding the Grand Vizier and his cabinet in session. Gunshots rang out as some attempted to defend the cabinet from the intruders. The Minister of War came to see what all the fuss was about and was shot and killed, though this was probably not intentional. Eventually, the coup plotters managed to get the Grand Vizier and force him to sign a letter of resignation at gunpoint. And Verbey later explained the coup to a French magazine, writing, quote, I sincerely regret having been forced to intervene again to overthrow a government, but it was impossible to wait. A delay of a few hours in the country would have been shamefully delivered to the enemy. Our army has never been stronger, and I really see no reason that compels us to capitulate to such monstrous demands. End quote. So that gives you a little bit of insight into the mindset of the CUP that just, you know, retook power in Constantinople. So with that coup successful, the CUP, i.e. the Young Turks, are back in charge, and the government that just agreed to peace is gone, its members largely fleeing into exile. Now, again, to give you a little more insight into this new government, one of their main slogans at this moment is Sofia or death. In other words, the peace treaty is now gone, and the Ottomans are returning to delaying tactics as they prepare to resume the war. And... You know, if that uh, slogan doesn't give you an idea, the main target now is Bulgaria. Now, again, the Ottomans don't want to give up those islands to the Greeks, but besides the besieged forces at Yanina and, you know, the naval battle, the Ottomans don't really have a direct front line with the Greeks. The only, you know, front line where they can actually have offensives and such is against the Bulgarians. So, even though the Ottomans are obviously upset at all the Balkan League members and would like to strike back at all of them, the only place they can really strike back is against Bulgaria. Thus, the slogan, Sofia or death. Now, I found conflicting sources about what precisely happened next. Either the Balkan allies broke off negotiations on the 16th, or the Ottomans ended them on the 23rd, but regardless, the Ottomans resolved to resume the war rather than accept the peace terms, 
that the Balkan allies and the great powers were demanding. Now this made sense because the Ottomans could clearly see, anyone with eyes could, that the Balkan League was fracturing. By now it was clear that Austria-Hungary was not going to allow Serbia to gain access to the Adriatic, which meant Serbia was going to be even more strident about getting all the Macedonian territory it occupied, much of which was in theory promised to Bulgaria. This in turn was bound to lead to conflict with Bulgaria. Then there were Bulgaria's negotiations with Greece. The Greeks wanted a border with Serbia, i.e. they backed Serbia's annexation of all the Macedonian territory it, it uh, controlled because basically the territory it promised to Bulgaria would have jumped in between the two and prevented them from having a border. The Greeks also wanted Thessaloniki, Serres, and Kavala. In other words, not only did the Greeks want Thessaloniki, they wanted a bunch of territory west of Thessaloniki, which Bulgarian troops had actually liberated and now controlled. So, yeah, you, it, it's clear to everyone based on what ha, what's happening in the negotiations that things between Bulgaria and her allies are not looking very rosy. Now, in response to all these demands, the Bulgarians were basically claiming that territory should be allocated based on the military sacrifices each country had made, with Geshov, the prime minister, stating, quote, Let Venizelos, the Greek prime minister, compare the size of our army and the amount of our sacrifices with those of the Greeks, and he will understand the outlandishness of the project and our categorical refusal to accept it, even as the basis for discussions. End quote. So even Geshov, who in general is very diplomatic, he's really been striving throughout these months to keep the alliance together, to keep everyone happy. Even he finds the Greek demands to be outrageous. Now, this Bulgarian-Greek rift had really started all the way back in December when the Greeks had attempted to establish administration in territories that Bulgarian troops had liberated. Again, the ones I just mentioned as well as releasing Ottoman prisoners of war, which Bulgaria feared would just return to fight Bulgaria because, again, Bulgaria was the only country that the Ottomans really directly bordered at this point. So, yeah, the Greeks were just letting go people who could just run and fight the Bulgarians. Obviously, the Bulgarians didn't appreciate that. So, even in December, the Bulgarians were starting to feel that mm, the Greeks are not playing very fair. They're, they're doing things we don't like. And the Bulgarians were getting a sense that they might actually have to fight Greece over Salonika. Hall, in particular, argues that, quote, the Bulgarians should have made a greater effort to reach an agreement with the Greeks. An acknowledgement that Salonika was Greek might have gone a long way towards resolving this problem. In London, they missed an excellent opportunity to settle this issue. Had they done so, they would have been in a much better position to confront the growing problem with Serbia over the disposition of Macedonia, end quote. Now, to be fair, that's with 2020 hindsight, but it's a good point. You know, the, the Bulgarians were still really kind of sticking to their guns on all these points and all the kind of territorial disputes, and that wasn't doing them any favors. Remember, you know, Thessaloniki is an ambiguous prize. It's tremendously economically important, but at least off the top of my head, I think it's about 47% Jewish. I think it's something like 10, 14% Greek and maybe 10% Bulgarian. So, you know, there are Bulgarians and Greeks in the city, but they are definite minorities. And, you know, obviously there's no Jewish state at this point in history to claim it. And so 
yeah, the city is sort of up in the air. And yeah, it's true. If Bulgaria had been a little more you know, forgiving with Thessaloniki, then perhaps they would have been able to come to an agreement earlier on with Greece. And that could have put them in a much better negotiating position when it came to Serbia. At this point, it's clear that relations between Bulgaria and every single one of its neighbors are already very bad or at least getting worse. In Macedonia, we already know that the Serbian government did not intend to abide by its treaty with Bulgaria, and this was gradually becoming clearer and clearer to people on the ground there. For example, Bulgarian administrators were by this point already being arrested by the Serbian officials. Bulgarian schools were being closed. Bulgarian priests were being harassed. Serbia, again, as we know, it made declarations to this point internally all the way back in September, Serbia considered Macedonia part of its historical territory, regardless of what anyone in Macedonia actually thought. And it's clear next to no one there really identified as Serbia. Indeed, interestingly enough, this fact that next to no one in Macedonia identified as Serbian came to a shock to many Serbian soldiers and officials when they entered Macedonia. My favorite kind of amusing example comes from Christopher Clark's book, Sleepwalkers, in which he recounts how the Serbian heir to the throne, Prince Alexander, was traveling around Macedonia, these newly conquered territories, and as he spoke with locals, he became more and more frustrated. And the reason was encounters that went something like this, and this is basically taking quotes from the book. Prince Alexander, going up to a random local, what are you? Random local, Bulgarian. Prince Alexander, and excuse my language, if there's kids uh, around, perhaps this is, this is not a very PC response, but Prince Alexander's response was, you are not Bulgarian, fuck your father. Now, apologies, that is the first time I've dropped an F-bomb on this podcast, but that is the quote. And, well, frankly, knowing the propensity of the Serbian language for elaborate curses, it doesn't surprise me that that's perhaps how Prince Alexander would respond to this frustrating uh, answer. But, you can see the, the, the Serbs are frustrated with how locals are interacting with them and the prevalence of Bulgarian identity in Macedonia at this time. But anyways, in response to all that, Serbia was already engaging in a concentrated campaign to suppress Bulgarian identity in Macedonia. Then, while negotiations were still ongoing in London, Serbia requested a revision of its treaty with Bulgaria. Their argument was that because Serbia was not going to get sea access, that it seemed Bulgaria was going to get more territory than it had originally anticipated in Thrace, that it was only fair that, you know, more of Macedonia should go to Serbia. In addition, they felt that Bulgaria had not sent as many troops to Macedonia as it should have. Uh, but yeah, based on all this, they wanted to renegotiate what had previously been agreed to. Now, of course, as we know, the Serbs had taken Macedonia without very much trouble and hardly needed Bulgarian assistance, while by contrast, Bulgaria's victories in Thrace had been very hard won and ensured the Ottomans could not counterattack or even reinforce their troops in Macedonia, effectively cementing Serbia's gains. Now, all of this as a whole was very concerning, but Bulgaria remained confident, first in its military strength and second, that Russia would ultimately take Sofia's side and find an appropriate resolution. Then there was Romania. 
Recall that in the lead up to the Balkan War, Bulgaria had attempted to sign a treaty with Romania to ensure Bucharest wouldn't potentially side with the Ottomans or even the Austro-Hungarians against the Balkan allies. But what Bulgaria didn't realize was that Romania saw itself as the strongest Balkan state and very much wanted that to remain the case. In other words, Romania was becoming more and more hostile towards Bulgaria because Bulgaria was becoming stronger and potentially taking more and more territory. The problem was that the Bulgarians were basically unaware that, you know, Romania was becoming more hostile. Now, back in the summer, the Romanians had rebuffed Bulgarian advances because, as Hall puts it, they, quote, wanted to wait until the outcome of the war was clear before presenting a bill, end quote. So, In other words, once it was clear just how much more powerful Bulgaria was going to become, based on that, Bucharest planned to inform Sofia that it's going to need some chunk of Bulgarian territory in order to maintain a balance of power. It's just fair. So, this is something akin to Serbia's demands back in the 1886 war, where Bulgaria unified with Eastern Rumelia, and Serbia felt, hey, it's not fair that our neighbors should become more powerful without us being more powerful, therefore they should give us some territory to maintain a balance of power. Personally, I kind of imagine that, you know, a kid gets all A's in school and their parents buy them a video game in recognition of their hard work, and the kid next door says it's not fair that the next door kid gets a video game that he or she should get something too. I mean, Yeah, it's kind of playing on this great power discussions, this great power language about balance of power, but it's a little bit absurd that, you know, if your neighbor becomes more powerful, more wealthy, anything like that, that they should give up some of that to you just to maintain parity, or in the case of Romania and their own kind of self-image, so that they can remain stronger. It's, yeah, very odd, but, you know, it's a little bit might makes right, and, you know, the, these these powers, I mean, they're claiming the, again, diplomatic language of balance of power and things. But, I mean, my reading of it is it's very much might makes right. We think we're in a powerful enough position to force this upon you, so that's what we're going to do. Now, all those analogies aside, the Romanians initially asked for the city of Silistra, which is up on the Danube, and in addition, a kind of adjusting of the land border where the two countries met. But in January, the Romanians informed the Bulgarian delegation in London that they now also wanted southern Dobroja. And over time, I'll kind of talk about that, they kind of made the line go further south, so they asked for more and more of Dobroja. As a reminder, southern Dobroja was quite important for Bulgaria because it was very flat and very fertile. Most of Bulgaria, as I've mentioned before, is quite mountainous or at least hilly, and so southern Dobroja was a bit of a breadbasket for Bulgaria. So Bulgaria, you recall all the way back in the Congress of Berlin, had originally wanted north and south Dobruja, but the Congress of Berlin decided to split it, giving Romania the northern bit and Bulgaria the southern bit. Population-wise, this is a bit complicated. Dobruja in general had a lot of Tatars and a lot of Turks, as well as plenty of kind of Romanians and Bulgarians. I think next episode, I found a good uh, master's thesis, uh, ironically enough, from a friend of mine from my master's program um, that talks more about this. So I think the next episode, I'll kind of dive into this a little more. But, you know, a little bit like Thessaloniki, it's one of these places where it's a very mixed population. And so both sides could, in theory, have some claims to it. And that makes it, you know, 
easy for everyone to say, no, this should be mine, this should be mine. But anyways, Romania and Bulgaria initially came to an agreement in which Bulgaria agreed to demolish its fortifications around Silistra, but really the Bulgarians were just buying time. The Romanians, for their part, wanted to invade right away, but Berlin and Vienna persuaded them to, you know, wait and hold off. So this was the diplomatic situation at the moment. The war resumed around January 23rd. Again, I found some different dates about when this happened, but they're all within a few days of each other. So late January uh, 1913. So Bulgaria is still negotiating with Romania, with Serbia, and with Greece. And these are very difficult and very tense negotiations. And while that's happening, the war is back on, at least for Bulgaria. For Serbia, they, they don't share a border. The, the war is over for them no matter what happens. And the Greeks, mostly their war is just a little bit on the sea and the siege of Yanina, and they never signed the armistice anyway. So really the war's just back on for Bulgaria. Here's the state of things at this moment. As we know, fighting at Yanina, Skutari, and a bit in southern Albania never really ended. But the resumption of the war meant that fighting resumed at Adrianople, Chetalja, that line in front of Constantinople, and now along the kind of Gallipoli Peninsula. So because the Bulgarians by, had, had by this point taken much of the north bank of the Sea of Marmara, as always, I highly recommend you look at a map to, you know, the, there's one linked in the podcast uh, kind of blog post for this episode that will help, or you could just open Google Maps or something, but that'll make all this clearer. So the Bulgarians had taken much of the north sea of the sea, north bank of the Sea of Marmara, and they have now opened a front on Gallipoli, where Bulgaria is eager to take as much of the peninsula as possible, which would, in theory, limit the size or the length of the front line and increase the likelihood that Bulgaria would get Gallipoli in the peace deal, which, because Gallipoli forms the kind of northern part of the Dardanelles Straits, would mean that Bulgaria would suddenly become the equal owner or kind of controller of the Dardanelles with the Ottomans, which, as we know, is a very powerful position to be in. With the war resuming, the Second Battle of Chetalja began as well, with both the Bulgarians and the Ottomans making some occasional attacks, though for now neither side is really making much ground. Overall, though, the Ottomans in resuming the war, were determined to relieve Adrianople to prevent the city from falling into Bulgarian hands. The Bulgarians, despite the fact that their offensive capabilities are largely spent, were themselves determined to kind of renew pressure on the Ottomans and push them back to the negotiating table. Now, the first Ottoman kind of counterattack was on the Gallipoli front, where the Ottomans had used the two-month armistice to significantly reinforce their forces. The main aim here was to advance north, linking up with a landing at Sharki on the uh, shores of the Sea of Marmara, and ideally using this joint force to then push through the Bulgarian, the rear of the Bulgarian uh, troops at Chitalja, advance into Thrace, and relieve Adrianople. The first stage of this plan, as I said, was at Gallipoli, and began on the morning of January 26th, with an Ottoman division slowly advancing from its defensive positions, which ironically had actually been built by the British and the French during the Crimean War back in the 19th century, under the, the cover of a kind of dense fog, with the Ottomans only being spotted by the Bulgarians when they were about 100 steps away from the Bulgarian trenches. Both sides opened fire, including an Ottoman cruiser bombarding the Bulgarians from the Sea of Marmara, and within two hours the Ottomans had pushed forward along the shores of the sea 
and were in danger of outflanking a Bulgarian regiment. The pressure on the Bulgarians was intense, leading one Bulgarian officer to explain to his men, quote, if you retreat, you will be shot. If I retreat, shoot me, end quote. In response, the Bulgarians ordered a counterattack, which quickly pushed the Ottomans back to their starting positions. The Bulgarians then pressed their advantage, concentrating artillery and pushing farther forward. And soon, after some brutal hand-to-hand combat, the Ottomans were forced into a total retreat. Thus, in just over 11 hours, the Battle of Bulair, named after the settlement about halfway up the Gallipoli Peninsula, saw the Ottomans lose about half of their men and most of their equipment, totaling around 16,000 casualties. The Bulgarians, by contrast, took fewer than 600 casualties. As a result, the Bulgarians advanced further down the Gallipoli Peninsula, though the Ottomans did restore a defensive line there. Interestingly enough, one of the Ottoman commanders in this attack was a certain Mustafa Kemal, who is popping up yet again. But... What about that landing that the Ottoman attack in Gallipoli was supposed to link up with? Well, there, the Ottoman navy had begun by bombarding the port of Sharkoi the night before the attack in Gallipoli. In response, the Bulgarians pulled back about two miles and attempted to return fire. Then the next day, around 30 to 40,000 Ottoman soldiers disembarked about three kilometers from the port. This landing was supposed to have happened in the morning at the exact same time as the Gallipoli attack, but it was ultimately delayed until the afternoon, weakening its, you know, offensive punch. Once they landed, the Ottomans advanced on the port of Sharkoi itself, under covering fire from the navy in the Sea of Marmara. Now, this landing posed a pretty serious risk, potentially enabling the Ottomans to, again, push up north into the rear of the Bulgarian forces at the Chitalja line, and potentially relieving the siege of Adrianople. As such, Bulgarian commanders quickly rushed in reinforcements to the severely outnumbered troops facing this enormous landing. But even before those reinforcements could arrive, the severely outnumbered Bulgarians held onto the port that first day, pushing the Ottomans back to their landing site. The next day, another Ottoman force landed on another stretch of coastline, but their plan was overall already facing difficulties as the attacks at Chitalja and Gallipoli had failed. And so the longer the Ottomans went without taking the port of Sharkoi, the more difficult it would be for them to support these tens of thousands of troops that they've landed logistically. For example, the Ottomans were pretty severely hampered by their inability to offload heavy artillery because again, they couldn't take the port. Thus, on the third day, the Bulgarians counterattacked and pushed the Ottoman landings all the way back to their starting positions. As a result, in light of the failure to break through here or on any of the other two fronts, the Ottomans decided to retreat and get back on the ships and transfer the remaining of those forces back to Gallipoli, where they could reinforce that peninsula. So, in three days of intense fighting, the Bulgarians managed to defeat and push back a coordinated Ottoman counterattack from three directions designed to relieve Adrianople. Hall summarizes this pretty well, noting that the offensive showed how much the Ottomans had recovered their fighting spirit since the First Battle of Chitalja, but its failures showed the continuing failure of Ottoman leadership to take advantage of that renewed spirit. So the initiative was now back with the Bulgarians. Meanwhile, fighting still raged over at Yanina, where the Ottoman defenders had maintained an active defense since the siege began. However, 
They faced some setbacks as Albanian irregulars had destroyed the main port the Greeks were using to supply their besieging force back in the final days of the year. The Greeks had mounted a major attack in the rain back on January 7th, but it had narrowly failed. So the pressure was still on the fortress, but both sides felt at this point that Yanina, if it wasn't taken before peace was agreed to, it might be assigned to an independent Albania. So the Albanians and the Ottomans had a very strong reason to defend it and hold out as long as possible, and the Greeks had a very strong incentive to take it as soon as humanly possible. Over at Adrianople, the garrison there was pretty concerned that it might run out of food and supplies if it wasn't relieved soon. But they had used the armistice to reinforce their defenses however they could. The Bulgarian general Fichev summarized the Bulgarian predicament here, noting, quote, If we attack Adrianople, we can fail and sustain great losses. If we do not attack, the war will continue, end quote. So, here as well, you know, the Bulgarians know that if they don't take Adrianople, the likelihood they'll get it in the peace deal is, you know, much smaller. But if they attack it, they can, you know, basically lead to hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of Bulgarian dead and weaken their ability to sort of maintain a strong military posture. So it's dangerous either way. Now, General Savov was by this point hoping that the garrison of Adrianople would just surrender and save the Bulgarians from what could be a tremendously bloody frontal assault. One major issue the Bulgarians were facing, though, was a lack of heavy artillery, which led the Bulgarians to request some from Serbia. The Serbs agreed, noting that they'd work out compensation for this assistance later, to which the Bulgarians responded that the compensation would be only financial. So, yeah, both sides are still playing this game with the peace negotiations and who should get what based on what assistance was provided. Now, the gigantic book of all the dates in Bulgarian history I have mentions that in the middle of the Ottoman counterattack, the Montenegrin, Greek, and Serbian governments met in Zurich to agree to act against Bulgaria, but I couldn't find any mention of this meeting in any other source online or in paper, in English, or in Bulgarian, so I have no idea if this meeting really happened. But regardless of whether that specific meeting happened, one thing by this point is very clear. As the fighting has resumed, despite victories on the battlefield, Bulgaria is in a worsening position vis-a-vis -vis its Balkan allies, Romania, and the Ottomans. And so that's where I'm going to wrap up today. A coup in the Ottoman Empire has completely upended the political situation, leading to the evaporation of a peace deal that seemed to give Bulgaria what it wanted. And with that, the war is back on. More and more disagreements between Bulgaria and her Balkan allies are developing as Serbia and Greece both seem to be preparing to fight for the territory they control, and even Romania is pressing its advantage and waiting for the right moment to, de to demand more and more territory. But on the military side, Bulgaria did successfully defeat a major Ottoman counterattack, but that success has only really brought them back to the situation before the armistice. A little better, but not substantially. Any changes to that situation, either breaking through the Chitalja line, taking Adrianople, or taking Gallipoli, will likely require enormous sacrifices and immense risk. The question now is whether Bulgaria will take those risks and whether they might pay off. Next time, we'll see the squabbles between Bulgaria and its neighbors intensify even more as the Ottomans are pushed closer and closer towards final defeat.
This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and produced by the talented Teddy Raven. As always, you can check out more information in the link in the description or just go to bghistorypodcast.com and I'll catch you all in the next one.